0: Mental health in our community is so stigmatized. We really started getting a lot of inquiries from Asian and Asian Americans, talking about all the violence that they were witnessing on TV. And so then I think living with mental health for so long, but having that awareness that this is something that is actually being reflected on a day-to-day basis. We believe that we're part of this movement right now where Asian mental health is becoming talked about and becoming more aware. This is the movement that we're part of.
1: You're listening to the Big Asian Energy Show, where every week we interview Asian experts, move makers, and ceiling breakers to uncover their secrets of success so we can help you reach your greatest potential. I'm your host, John Wang. Let's dive in. Welcome back to Big Asian Energy. Today we have with us co-authors Su Jin Lee and Linda Yoon, who are licensed therapists who Witness firsthand how mental health issues often went unaddressed in immigrant communities and in particular scenes, Asian and Asian American communities. Linda and Su Jin are the co-directors of the Yellow Cheer Collective who provide therapy to clients of a diverse background, but with an emphasis on serving the Asian American community. They also have a book coming out, which I'm so excited to talk about because I read it and no joke, it brought tears to my eyes several times. The book coming out is called Where I Belong. So first and foremost, I just want to say thank you and welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having us. Thank
2: you for having us. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Thank you for putting up with all the messiness today. Okay, so let's dive in. How would you describe yourselves and what you guys do? And why should somebody listen to this episode today?
0: Yeah, so again, my name is Sujin Lee. I would describe myself as a one5 Korean-American. It's very particular, right? We talk about this in our book. <laughs> and we are co-directors of Yellow Chair Collective, as you introduce yourselves. Mental health in our community is so stigmatized. And in the midst of COVID, we really started getting a lot of inquiries from Asian and Asian Americans, talking about all the violence that they were witnessing on TV. And so then I think Living with mental health for so long, but having that awareness that, okay, this is something that is actually being reflected on a day-to-day basis. I cannot keep this to myself anymore. And so we believe that we're part of this movement right now where Asian mental health is becoming talked about and becoming more aware. This is the movement that we're part of.
1: Amazing. And Linda, is there anything you want to add to that?
2: Hi, I'm Linda. Linda you and I use she- they pronouns. I'm a uh, founder and co-director at Yellow Chair Collective, along with Sujin. Started in 2018, but we weren't sure we could focus on Asian American mental health. Although Sujin and my background always has been Asian mental health, we met a nonprofit that served Asian immigrants, refugees, or lower income, and that's where we met, and that's always been our passion to serve. But when we are going to private practice, because of the stigma in Asian American community, we've been told that it probably be hard to have a practice focused on Asian American mental health because Asian Americans do not seek for mental health services. Mm -hmm. But that really has changed in twenty twenty. We had really increase of Asian Asian Americans seeking for mental services for the first time a lot of inquiry said that they never thought about therapy but they're really you know seeing the need not only the pandemic anti-asian hate crimes that were coming out in 2020 to on but also what they're witnessing was also bringing up a lot of traumas they might not have worked on we thought about process because we are witnessing more of what was happening in the world that brought up a lot of those internally. And that really made us to grow and be in the movement of Asian mental health.
1: This is a very personal topic to me because I love the discussion of mental health. I think you guys are absolutely right. Vastly underserved. A lot of people I feel like are going through struggles that I feel they think only they're really going through. And we have social media now where people are turning more to social media, where they're going, oh my gosh, like I'm not the only person who's going through this. And there's so many great leaders out there who are talking about this but i have gotten so many friends who have asked me hey where do i find a therapist especially working with somebody who understands asian americans and i know you guys have a collective but this is a really hard thing to do it's not cheap to hire a therapist sometimes for a lot of people and sorry i probably should find better language around that but it can be daunting to invest in somebody that you don't know is a good fit do you guys have any suggestions i mean there's so many modalities and terms out there it could be very confusing and intimidating
2: yeah there's directories now that are available that didn't exist just a few years ago asians for mental health that's a directory for therapists both us and canada i believe and there's also asian mental health collective they also have a directory I believe they have at least one therapist in each state and also Canada. That would be really good resources. So one of the things when you're looking for a therapist, maybe even do
0: an exercise of writing this down is, number one, are you looking for online services or in-person services? Because then that narrows it down to location because it'll be really important if you're looking for an in-person service that it's within your neighborhood that you can commute to it. So that that narrows it down naturally. If you're looking for online service that widens your choices and then number two is what is your financial means like what can i actually invest into financially like on a monthly basis perhaps or on a weekly basis if you're planning on seeing weekly or bi-weekly like those logistical things might be really important to figure out and if i am having a hard time affording therapy out of my own pocket, then the avenue that you will be looking into is going to be through your insurance. So that if I'm looking through my insurance and looking through these directories, is there a check off box? Most of them do, or most of them, the therapist will note that they take certain insurance, but those information I'll be looking for. And then the third thing after that I would be looking for is what is my struggle? Mm-hmm. So kind of like general care as well, If I am having stomach issues, I want to go see a specialist for that. And so you can think of therapists as like these specialists as well, or as a generalist. And so am I looking for a specialist or am I looking for a generalist? And so I want to maybe write down like some of the things that I really want to work on and struggle with. If I'm not finding that in the directory or if I'm reading through the profiles, I don't know if this might be a good fit, then it's totally okay to just give them a call or to email to ask, like, this is what I really want to work on, or this is what I'm struggling with. Can you help me
1: with this? Perfect, that's super helpful. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> that's exactly what I was trying to find out. But I'm really curious for you guys, at what point did you guys decide, let me focus on Asian Americans and why?
2: So we always want to focus on Asian Americans. Sujay and I met at a nonprofit that served Asian American population particularly immigrants and refugees. And when we moved to a more private practice, that was hard. (laughs) Many Asians had the stigma around mental health, therapy, or even didn't want to invest in something they felt like they could talk to their friends or family or something that is shameful to talk about. With pandemic, that really has changed. That was just the worldwide mental health crisis, right?
1: I feel like everyone did. I think can we just take a moment and just accept that that's okay, because I feel like even that to acknowledge that professionals and people who are seen as you know successful, we all go through it. It's a very normalized practice, more moralized experience.
2: And a lot of therapists also went through a hard time too. Therapists would have support groups, and we we're just talking about how we're all also going through it and how we want to support our clients. So you asked about, like,
0: what made us kind of decide to work with Asian and Asian Americans. Yeah. And I think there was not a pivotal moment that decided that for us. Like, we needed to serve ourselves. There was no space for us. There was no modality or theoretical model when we were learning how to do therapeutic work that really worked and spoke with the way that I was relating to my own parents. Mm -hmm. there was no way that my parents would be able to be in therapy and understand what was going on and actually find healing from that experience, like Mm -hmm. my parents are suffering, my neighbors are suffering, my relatives are suffering, and there's absolutely no therapeutic space for them. So of course, we as professionals are going to be the ones that are going to be serving them, right?
1: Mm -hmm. I love this point that you made. I'd love to dive a little bit deeper on that. I remember I was watching the Netflix show Beef. I don't know if you guys have seen it or heard of it, but oh my God, so good. I know that there is some controversy, but neglecting that, that show was very powerful for me because I felt like there's a hidden love song to therapy hidden away in there. And I think one of the main quotes in it was, and I don't want to misquote this, so I'm going to try to to just make it up here, but I think it was along the lines of, Western therapy doesn't work on Eastern minds. Mm Mm-hmm. And I felt like what you just talked about in there, which is that all the modalities are, that all the various books that are out there, they generally come from white faces. You know, when I think about my favorite therapists that I follow or my favorite thought leaders are white. It is it true that we interact with mental health topics differently? Certainly.
0: In the Western model, where psychology derives from anyways, mm-hmm. right? The mm-hmm. whole concept of psychology is a Western model to begin with. And therapeutic models are arriving from that concept of psychology, right? It's already deriving place comes from a separation of the mind and what's inside of our brains and our thoughts from everything else that's happening, like our spirits and our body specifically. Even the starting place of psychology, it's completely different from the way that our Eastern medicine has always been, which is holistic right? We went to shamans, we went to, you know, Eastern medicine practitioners for the longest time throughout history for everything. And not to say that they know everything, they were the professionals of it all. And of course, science has developed since. But the whole idea of medicine, I think, derives from separations of the pain from everything else that is our whole identity. Whereas the Eastern medicine really tries to observe The fact that we are a holistic being and that everything is connected together, that we are all connected together.
1: Mm. And when I hear the word holistic, I interpret that to mean that it's the physicality, right? Because when I think psychology and psychiatry, I think like there's the brain and then there's Uh this other thing of the body and then there's this other thing of the mind, which is what I'm assuming you're referring to. So the holistic idea is that they're all interconnected. So my mom, who loves talking about how I need to put on more jackets and drink more soup, might actually be talking about it from the perspective of that is her way of looking at mental health. Right, exactly.
0: And when we worked with older generation of immigrants, that's what we realized is when they were coming to see us for mental health issues, what they would start by talking about is like the scuts pain that just won't go away right or even like very tangible physical pain like I've been having this ache in my head like lingering ache for a long time and I know something is not right
1: oh my gosh for several years I had ulcers and then I went and I did my own like well mental health Really, was like I started working with a therapist and that like cured it that was my moment of recognition So you're saying is that that wasn't just in my head, that that wasn't a coincidence that I had made up, but there's a very strong connection there.
0: Right, exactly. Our minds and bodies are always connected. And for me, I talk about this in the book too, of my own story. I struggled with migraines for a really long time. And my mom has struggled with migraines all her life. Hmm. And so I always thought that that was just genetics. And partially part of our physical things, of course, is genetics. But really, when I began therapy, I recognized that it had to do with a lot of underlying pain and internal emotional issues that we were just shoving down our guts and into our bodies and letting it just sit there and brew there. And it would just come out into the sensations of like migraines that were really, I couldn't get out of bed or I couldn't really make it to work on time or I would cancel things last minute because of this migraine that I would have.
1: Are these the most common symptoms that you have heard from your clients and your patients? Is, is migraines and I heard stomach experiences or any others that you see come up quite often?
2: Pain can be anywhere in the body. I think I heard it all like back pain, head pain, shoulder pain, wrist pain, <laughs> right? But particularly one that stands out, something that I also had was fainting spells, something that When they feel a little stressed, overwhelmed, they have this unexplainable fainting spells. And doctors don't know why, everything looks fine. And then we really look into depth into like what's going on. And it has been more of the stress and trauma that hasn't built up. Your body trying to protect you from having more stress on your body. So in Mm. that, sometimes your body make you lose your conscience a lot of times like, oh, you're experiencing anxiety. They're like, no, 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 I'm not experiencing anxiety.
1: Wow. So like they don't even know how to identify those words. Like I know that there's a words that carry a lot of stigma, like anxiety, depression. I feel like we have this like reservation of claiming words like that. But right. even emotions like sadness, I feel like we kind of reject. We're like, oh, I'm not sad. No, I'm just going through things. Or just there's a dismissiveness around any emotional words
0: right in our culture we grew up being told and learned that there's negative emotions and there's positive emotions right Mm -hmm. there's joy and there's sadness and sadness is that negative emotion (laughs) depression oh heavily negative emotion but nobody's going to describe themselves like if you're really not getting out of bed and having a hard time i don't see a lot
2: of asian and asian americans being able to say
0: and i was feeling really depressed yesterday
2: Mm. There's a favorite story I like to tell people. When I went to outreach event for senior housing, it was all Korean. You know, there was about hundred Korean seniors, and then I'm doing a presentation on depression. So I asked anybody knew about depression, like what that was, and I remember this two confident ladies that like they raise their hand really fast and they say aloud that, "Oh, it's crazy people."
1: <laughs> that is such a common thing. Oh, they're just crazy. They're broken. (laughs) And it's this idea that they're like born crazy. Like if you're going through a tough time, you kill yourself. Oh, that's just because he's born crazy. His genetics is broken. Especially, I think, older Asian people in particular. That stigma is really heavy. You know, I just think about this. Like, how do you introduce that to them then? How do you introduce the idea of what mental health is and that it's not that big of a deal to experience quote unquote negative emotion because there's no such thing? how do you help them understand that and then how do you help them
2: we see this a lot with older generation like i feel like younger generation of course are more open uh, more open to talking about therapy emotions but older generation especially first gen immigrants like that was that's really hard even when they come to therapy a lot of times reluctantly or it wasn't their choice that family member like made them come or even they come, they come as a last resort. And they're so careful what they can say, what they wanna say. So for us, the first step always has been validating, you know, acknowledging and validating their emotions that they feel and that is normal and that is okay.
1: Would some of that validations be?
2: Just acknowledging that that's how they feel and validating, normalizing that a lot of people do feel this way. And then once we feel like we are heard, We start to feel safe and we start to be able to, okay, I don't have to put a defense to connect with another person in front of me, right? So that's the beauty of therapeutic process, feeling validated, seen, and knowing that you're not alone and you can trust a person who's going to be taking this journey with you. Oftentimes, we get the next generation, the second generation,
0: or the children of immigrants, like adult children of immigrants, that are calling on behalf of their parents. Right? Like, my mom really needs therapy. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we all do. Yeah. And so we get adult immigrants in the door first, right? They acknowledge that there is mental health issue that is happening in the family and that they feel it too. And so we get them in the door first and talk about how those conversations can occur. And for me, often I might also give them the tool of saying instead of pointing out what they are feeling or they might be feeling, we talk about how we are feeling, right? It provides Mm. them with a model to talk about it too and be okay with that, right? Like, Mm. mom, I'm feeling pretty depressed today. And that looks like and that means like I really had a hard time getting out of bed or I was feeling really sad that this had happened. Maybe it's uh, family grief that they're dealing with, right? But for me to be able to express that I'm feeling sad, it's just for us to provide them with the language and and know that this language can exist in our space together.
1: Wow, that's beautiful. So this is super helpful for anyone who I imagine wants to get their parents into therapy, (laughs) older Asian parents who might be like, I'm not a crazy person, I don't need therapy. I love that. So starting with modeling our own experiences and talking over with them. Is there anything that you have noticed as helped aside from doing that?
0: I always also let people know that the goal isn't to get them into therapy, though. Sometimes the model of healing, as we talked about way in the beginning, looks really different for them. And talk therapy, especially because A lot of talk therapy is happening in an online space that really does not land for my own dad. Like they barely will get on a call with me. (laughs) How am I going to expect them to sit in front of a computer and talk to this human face that's over a computer screen? With how we think about therapy, I think that needs to change. And the way that we think about healing and what mental health healing looks like I think that conversation really has to change. And so I tell them, what do they enjoy either in the past or in the present? And oftentimes when we say, what are they enjoying now? That's a really hard conversation to have. It's a really hard answer to have. But what did they enjoy in the past? And there's something. It's their music or, you know, my mom used to be a dancer. Or, you know, before we came for immigrants, right? Before we came, she used to cook a lot. And she couldn't because she had to raise us, whatever the story. There is a lostness of part of their identity that have been lost through along the way of becoming parents or becoming an immigrant or whatever. And so I think we try to find the part of that identity that's been lost and we try to regain an experience of that or a version of that. We already understand that that's never going to come back exactly the same way, but it can look different. One of the questions that I've asked somebody because they really could not think of anything, I had said, well, do your parents like to play mahjong and he's like yeah they do that all the time well that's a healing space that we can create then (laughs) right there we start from there
1: so what i'm hearing is if we're seeing our older parents who are maybe struggling with let's say what looks to be sadness or possibly even depression one way we could start introducing that is just by introducing support for them is really just is it inviting them to go and do more of the things that they enjoy and modeling that conversation and just having that acceptance Exactly. So we talked about mom and dad, which is great. Let's talk about us for a second, especially as a the first generation, I think that's the right term, or people who are second generation, third generation, Asian American or Asian Americans in general. Do you notice that the way we process or experience mental health is different from non-Asian American clients?
0: Yeah. But the reason why we started talking about our parents is because we grow up with that. So then, what kind of message are we receiving growing up that mental health can't be talked about? There's a lot of stigma. Like, this is for crazy people. So then, how we process our own emotions? There's negative emotions that we're not supposed to express to anyone else. Mm-hmm. So if we are taught to grow up with that, then what are our internalized values around mental health, mm-hmm. around the emotions, around the way that we relate to people, around the way we relate? We're oftentimes. I feel like for a lot of Asian and Asian-Americans, we are very fear-driven people. We are very motivated by fear.
1: Mm, Interesting. Tell me more.
0: Yeah. I don't know if you grew up with punishments, but punishments was part of my life.
1: Is that still fairly common? Do you still hear about that from a lot of your clients? It got so common for a while that it became almost a stereotype. And I'm quite curious these days, are you still hearing about it? Is this still normalized?
0: That's definitely not allowed, right? The next generation, the younger generation, I think they experience less of that. That's like legally at this point.
2: (laughs) Legally. And I feel like many Asian Americans growing up here, you know, they make that choice, conscious choice not to pass that on. Also, there's a the legal invocation in the US. And then the narratives also have been changing in Asia too. Like, I am Korea, still need some work. The laws are a lot more strengthened. There's a department dedicated to report those, which wasn't really existing when we were growing up there when we were younger.
1: So, when you're referring to punishment, it's not just physical punishment, it's like scolding?
0: Yeah. The way that we were brought up, I mean, there was definitely some physical punishment too. But there's a lot of sense of shame when it comes to punishment. And shame is really different. And we talk about this in the book as well. Shame and guilt is really different. Because guilt is the way that we are saying that what you did, your actions you broke a vase, so what you did was wrong. Shame, on the other hand, is your being is wrong. So then internalize those messages. Because I'm thinking about like a great example is like, when something was wrong, when a child does something wrong, I remember the first thing that my dad would say, what's wrong with you? It's what's wrong with me, not what I did was wrong, you see? So that we continuously hear these subtle messages saying that something is wrong with me. So then we're very fear-driven in a way that something's wrong with. So I got to correct it. I got to do something right. I got to
2: make it up somehow. Just to add to that, like common parents saying for Asians, especially East Asians, like, why can't you be more like your cousin, right? Why can't you be more like my friend's son? So there's comparison that like, why can't you be more like or not? action-oriented, but like you as a being.
1: And, and this is still common that you're seeing?
2: We still see them. I mean, it has decreased. I think the parent education definitely has more access to it and there's more outreach and people are more aware. But yes, we still see them.
1: I grew up definitely being compared. And I, I know a lot of my friends did where it's like, look at your cousin, you know, he just got to Stanford and you're like, okay. How does that impact us in a more realistic way in our adulthood?
0: So what we commonly see as a symptom of Growing up with all of these internalized messages, is our own sense of being and the way that we see ourselves tends to be on a low scale. And so Mm -hmm. we say we have low self esteem, right? And one of the things that we also talk about is having self compassion. But we really don't know as Asian and Asian Americans how to have self compassion. Mm -hmm. Compassion doesn't seem to exist a lot in our spaces. I think we are really good at. Being able to say, I empathize with somebody. I have a lot of pain that is experiencing somebody else's pain, and I can go through that. But when it comes to our own, the acknowledging of that pain isn't really there. We dismiss it. And that's because we have been dismissed all of our lives that we continue to dismiss that internally for ourselves, too.
1: Right. So how do we learn to cultivate self-compassion because i've noticed like growing up even after i started doing the inner work a lot of times you hear things like oh love yourself love yourself and i got a little tired of hearing that because i'm just like i love me i love me and i'm like i'm I'm self-caring i'm doing all the things i'm like drinking my latte i'm trying but i don't know if i'm doing it correctly and actually I feel like I'm not even sure what self-compassion is supposed to look like.
2: Yeah, that's a common question we get because self-compassion has been such a core curriculum in a lot of our support community groups that we run as well. And one thing I want to point out is self-love is not self-compassion. I mean, I think self-love is very important topic as well. But self-compassion, can it still exist without self-love? Just to simplify this level, like self-hatred and self-love on the other side, I would say self-compassion in the middle in some ways, that you're just accepting who you are, all your thoughts. Even if it's negative, but it's okay, like, oh, I feel less than, and that's okay. It's kind of having compassion, validating yourself, and letting all the emotions and thoughts to know that they are okay. There's no bad or good thoughts good emotions. It is just, it is. And that's just experience of being a human being. So just kind of acknowledging your humanity is the core of your self-compassion practice.
1: So starting with just accepting that whatever I'm experiencing, it's like, oh, hello, judgment. And just accepting that it's there without yeah, exactly. trying to make it wrong.
2: Yeah, and it's a human experience. And as I referenced earlier, when you feel like you're feeling heard and you're seen, those emotions, sometimes they subside because they are heard. They don't have to hide anymore. And they don't have to try to push to be out anymore because it's heard and seen.
1: When you said that those emotions don't have to try to be heard anymore, it sounds a little bit like parts work. Is that the kind of direction that we were heading to?
2: Yes, the parts work is definitely a part of big self-compassion work because mm-hmm. to of you definitely having part that has a judgment, part that feels not good enough, a part feels confident. There is going to be different parts and we need to be able to embrace each emotion, each part of self-compassion for us to really heal and bring us to wholeness.
1: So what tools do you give clients who are going through, because the opposite I, I think of is the self-compassion or self-love, it's the inner critic, right? It's the self-judgment, the self-hatred. What tools do you usually give clients who are going through that so that they have better vocabulary?
2: Well, I love approaching self-critic with self-compassion. So.
1: <laughs> What does it look like in practice? Like, what's the five steps here?
2: One way to start is to know, like, hey, like, let's try to recognize where is this self-critic really coming from? Because we do not believe that voice was born with us. We learned somewhere. We heard somewhere. And we internalized it and we made it our own a lot of times. And that's okay. Like, that's also being part of human being, right? Reflecting on your experiences, your background, like, You internalize self-critic for a reason, to survive, to succeed, whatever the reason is. And then we can start extending self-compassion to that self-critic. Like, you have to be here to protect me. You have to be here to survive, go through this. So kind of really extending that understanding and self-compassion towards self-critic and letting the self-critic know that you hear them doesn't have to work so hard to push you all the time and see if you're able to have that conversation without judgment which is a hard to ask for a lot of people and it is hard self-compassion work it's not an easy work but it gets easier as we practice more and more
1: so it's literally imagining a conversation we're having with that feeling yeah. and going yeah hi let's chat which sounds kind of awkward at yeah. the moment but it can actually talk back
0: Exactly. Yeah. So one of the things that I I love introducing is this concept of round table. And what a round table is, is inviting all of the different parts of us that have just been activated right now. And so the critical part of me, and then the bold part of me, and then the shy part of me, like whatever part of me that I know exists inside of me right now in this moment, I'm inviting you to this round table, you all come. And we're each going to take turn kind of talking to each other about why I'm here in this space. I've been activated for a reason. The shy part of me is being activated right now in this very moment as we're talking because that inner child in me is saying, well, I don't think that a woman should be bold and speak up because that's something, a learned belief that I grew up with. So that I'm just going to allow that to exist as well right now in this space. That there is that learned belief that is still in me that needed attending to. And then there's still the confidence inside of me and saying, no, I deserve not to be here. I'm not hard.
1: Tap a little bit into the anger almost.
0: <laughs> even the way that I'm talking about, like this is all internally in me. So even the way that I talk, Switches. There's different tones that come out, (laughs) and just gonna allow all of them to come together in this table, and we're gonna talk. And that's a starting place of building that self compassion, is saying we all exist, and we are gonna have a chair in us.
1: I love that. It's the allowance of each part instead of shaming or judging any of those individual pieces, and being like, "Oh, I'm feeling anger. Oh, I can't. I shouldn't be angry right now." Just like pushing it down, we kind of acknowledge and be like, "Okay, well, you're here." And you're here because there's a reason why you think you need to be here. So let's chat. Why are you here? This is very advanced work. This is very powerful.
0: It is. So let me just say, this is the later part of our chapter of the book. (laughs) In the book, we take you through the journey of getting to this place of being able to have these conversations within yourself.
1: Yeah. So I wanna talk about this book because I'm quite excited about it. It's The book is about belonging, which I thought was really interesting because it's a mental health book. Why is it called Where I Belong?
0: I think we're all suffering in isolation. If I can just wrap it up in one sentence, I would say for what I've noticed as I've spoken with so many people in the mental health world, we all feel like we're suffering alone. We suffer in isolation. And we feel like our story, our suffering, our pains, whatever it is, it doesn't belong anywhere.
1: Can you elaborate a little bit on that? What do you mean we're suffering in isolation?
0: This round table that I've introduced, if we're going through this journey of healing also, for many people, they tell me this, that it still feels like it's still inside of my head. It feels like I'm doing this alone. I'm doing this work alone. That I'm talking to myself, (laughs) literally, right? (laughs) And so then I lose the sense of belonging in an actual physical connection. We started it off as not a book format, really. We didn't intend on this becoming a book, but we started it off as a community group space, and it was a curriculum from week to week for six weeks, initially six weeks of what we were going to talk about as Asian and Asian Americans that were dealing with these pain points of of our lives, like what it meant to witness so much violence on TV that were against people that look like me and how to process that was part of this curriculum. And what we realized is the one-on-one talking points that we were having weren't enough. Like it had to be this group effort where I'm sharing your voice and your story and your Listening and hearing my voice and others, somebody else's voice, and to be able to all collectively say yes, I understand, yes, I hear you. That had to be part of the healing.
1: Right, it's a recognition it's a, instead of the rejection. It's allowed exactly. me to and that others share my experiences.
0: Mm. Right. The uniqueness of our book is that there are actual personal stories. As a reader, you don't even have to read through the psychoeducational portion, like if that feels too heavy. You can just read, even just go through people's stories and read those, because that's how you feel connected. You acknowledge your own story amongst, as part of this bigger collective of story.
1: One thing I really loved about what I was going through was exactly that. It's just that I could see myself in the experiences of others and from different cultures, different background, different nationalities. But I'm like, yeah, I've, I've also felt that. I've also experienced that. It was like looking in a mirror almost of seeing yourself and your experiences through that. Thank you. Linda, you had another point. I want to hear that.
2: the <laughs> no worries. As Asian Americans, we grow up hearing from mainstream media or community, especially if you live in a community that is not predominantly... Asian or diverse is that you don't belong. Mom then Joe, when we were growing up, where are you from? Or, uh-huh. oh, you speak really good English. When I moved to Texas, I grew up in California, so I was more diverse here. But when I moved to Texas, which I became a city that was smaller, I was very minority. And I will be asked all the time, oh, where are you from? What's your name? And then I'll, I'll say Linda because I have an English name. They were like, no, what is your real name? What is your Chinese name? Like this little micro regression saying that you don't belong here. So we want to capture that in some ways by our title, Where I Belong, because the book is for Asian American experience and mm. hey, we belong here. We can reclaim that.
1: So, Where I Belong is kind of saying is that it's within this book that we find belonging. I love that. So, this book, as, as Sujin said, As it began as a curriculum, what was the intention? Like when somebody reads through this book, by the end of it, what's the transformation that they're looking to get?
0: So we go through this journey of recognizing and understanding intergenerational trauma, kind of a core key element of this book that we're taking you through, an element that we thought we needed to write about because that became kind of a core conversations that we were having when we had this curriculum. For the community groups. We all share in this intergenerational trauma as Asian Asian Americans. We all have history of war and displacement that we've gone through. And that brings us to this place in time right now. And what does that mean? And we yeah, start off
1: I was just about to ask because I feel like the term like it's becoming more and more known, but there's so many different layers to that. Can you explain what you mean by intergenerational trauma?
0: Yeah. So if I can just do it in like one to two sentences, it's (laughs) (laughs) trauma that has not passed down through generations. Sure. Like I said, uh, we start off with the historical elements of war and displacement. And that might be directly like our parents have. We experienced this a lot with like the second generation of immigrants. Like they were refugees or I was a refugee, right? I was in Thailand. I was in Canada before I ended up here or however that displacement took. Place. And through those assessments and through these generations of different elements of what we had to survive through, there's great resources that we have gathered internally. Alongside strengths, we've also gathered a lot of trauma. And those trauma really lives with us the way that we internalize our values, right? right. About some of our struggles, all of it is really just depression we've like lived through generations of depression that's been down or just anxiety but it can also be the way that we relate to the world like we talked about kind of like fear driven so this is the journey that we're taking so we understand where is it coming from like why are we behaving the way that we are with each other and how do we exist in this space carrying this trauma how do we heal from it is part of this book
1: and what i'm understanding is that when we talk about intergenerational trauma, there's different layers. There's like the epigenetic layer, which is the actual trauma that gets passed on physically. And then there's the conditioning and the taught trauma, kind of like what you talk about, the fear-based. So that's also a part of the intergenerational trauma that we see that might have gotten passed down from our grandparents or our parents and then to us. This book is not just that we're doing the healing work for ourselves. It's actually also we're doing the healing work so that it doesn't get passed on. Is that right? Exactly. Is there anything that you feel like when you guys were doing research and writing for this book that you felt like this is a very particular to Asian experience? We talked about some of the cultural conditioning, all that already, but I just wanted to see if there's anything else in the process of overcoming that you feel like this is something that's very unique to us. Because I think that's what connects us because it's Asian-American, that's a big term, right? There's Cambodian, there's Indian, there's Korean.
2: One big topic we had to address is definitely model minority myth.
1: Yes. Okay.
2: Whether it served as advantage or disadvantage, each ethnic group within Asian-American umbrella have mixed feelings. Some people benefited more than others and some people, it really made them feel invisible. But because we are in this Asian American category, one way or another, a lot of Asian Americans are definitely impacted by it.
1: Yeah, the way we've been kind of like turned into sometimes even say a a political chip as a result of the way we looked, which is complicated and kind of icky. Okay, again, one thing you talked about just now kind of reminded me of something because You talked about the experience of the shy part of us that sometimes can show up. And now I know that experience really, really well. And I did executive coaching. So I work with Asian Americans and that is the number one thing that always comes up, which is how do I stop feeling shy or like turn off the overthinking? Now, I have a bunch of communication tools that I usually give them, but I do see that this comes up a lot. And I do want to point out that this comes up a lot more so with, I feel like Asian women in particular. When you hear clients going through this self-minimizing or self-censoring, what do you usually bring up for them? What do you give as advice? I think we don't really give advice. That's right. Yeah,
0: The journey of the healing process that we would be able to take with them, which is different than an advice that I can provide for you, is... The thing that we were talking about before right it's this tool of being able to recognize like where is it really coming from and is that my voice or somebody else's voice is this a learned experience
1: are there anything that we could kind of guide us to
0: let's start with i am shy when i say i am shy what is the emotion separating from those words that is coming up for me right now and i'm right So the thought that I'm having is I am shy. The emotion that I might be having is anxiety. And then I'm gonna ask, okay, what is my body doing right now? My heart is racing. My palms are sweaty. I am smiling really wide because I am trying to hide something. So these are three separate elements that I will take a look at first as an exercise. I'm shy, I'm anxious, Okay, my body's reacting this way. And then I'm gonna tackle each one of these, maybe a little bit separately. So then my body, with my body, my hands are sweaty, I'm smiling really wide, my heart is pumping. All right, what do I wanna do about that? I'm gonna take some deep breaths, I'm gonna get some cold water, I'm gonna have some ice water. It's gonna ease up that heartbeat. The anxiety portion, right, that what I'm feeling, goes together, like we talked about, it's holistic care. So it goes together with the way that I might interact with my body. But what are my anxiety tools that I can utilize? Having something physical, sensational for me can work really well. It doesn't have to be anything that is too big. But there's this mark that I have in front of me. And it's got this really wonderful strands of like almost hair-like threads. So I might begin kind of like touching this kind of gives me a little bit of calmness with that anxiety that I'm feeling, that emotional element. And now with the thought, I am shy. That portion I'm going to leave to you because you're the
2: coach, right? The alternative way of talking to yourself. That's something I would like to add on that. I am extroverted, but I'm shy. So it just sounds very uh, opposite, but it makes sense knowing my childhood experiences. I've been taught that girls, women don't talk back to men. Authority, or you stay quiet. And I was awarded for being quiet was growing up. Like, oh, Linda's such a good kid because she's quiet. That's what women get a lot least when we were growing up. So there's a societal isolation of being quiet doesn't always mean shy but that can lead to shyness uh, that you're not supposed to show yourself you're not supposed to speak out so that can lead to shyness. So recognizing where those emotions or belief may come from is one step and then being able to think about how you want to release it it can be through visualization or acknowledging and writing letters and then letting go. There can be many different ways to release that old belief that you want to let go about shyness, perhaps. Another thing is that could be practical that I use with my clients is we talked about parts work earlier. So you find a part in you that feels confident. Think about that one time you felt really confident and you felt really proud of yourself embody that feeling in your body and go with it if you need to do a presentation you need to speak to your boss about something that you need that energy that energy you have when you're so proud of yourself think about that memory embody that and try to bring the energy to wherever you need to go or if you cannot think about that think about someone that you feel like embody that confident that you want kind of imagine that person how would that person would feel in their body or speak and try to channel that person's energy to do what you need to do i don't want to say overcome shyness because i do think self-compassion also needs to extend to shyness but be able to confidently do what you are hoping to do
1: i love that this is such a great balance of the two perspectives that you guys came that the two of you gave have been such a great balance i think as two separate tool sets that are very useful these are probably one of the things that I imagine a lot more people who experience this is this feeling of confidence that we want to kind of go into. Of course, that is, you're absolutely right. It's not really the kind of the work that is really about therapy, but I think is very surface level that we can address and hold on to and then allows us to start gaining awareness and gaining discernment. When we first started this episode, one of the core questions that I really wanted to uncover was why Asian Americans? Why Is there a need for looking at mental health differently? And I think that the answer, Sujin, that you gave was so perfect was we culturally have always looked at ourselves differently. So why wouldn't we look at mental health differently? Why wouldn't we look at health differently? And why wouldn't look at the way that we relate to one another and building that sense of belonging be the foundation that allows us to look at our own individualized healing? And I'm just so grateful this book is coming out. (laughs) I just want to make sure, I'm pretty sure that the date is January 9th is when the book officially goes out. I'm so excited. Pretty sure it's everywhere that books will be found. Thank you, Sujin and Linda, so, so much. Is there anything else that you want to add before we wrap up?
0: I think I want everyone to know that we explored this so much in our conversation today, but there is a space for every single part of our experience. And there needs to be a space that we create together so that we can all belong. Every single part of us
1: should have a space to belong. I absolutely agree. It's such a simple thing that at first glance, the word belong feels so easily dismissed. Like, of course I belong. And I think there's a difference. I think that sometimes we mistake belonging to be nobody has outright rejected us we assume that just because nobody says you're not supposed to be here therefore we belong but the feeling between belonging is actually very different there's a true acceptance that is different and it needs to be brought out aside from the book is there anything that listeners can do to find out more about your work and possibly work with somebody within your collective as therapists
0: yes if you visit our website it's yellowsharecollective.com there's tons of information about the work that we're doing as well as all the list of therapists that are accepting clients at this time. Uh, We also have a blog as well as a podcast that informs everyone about Asian and Asian American mental health topics. And so feel free to roam around on our website and contact us through there.
1: So once again thank you so much Sujin and Linda for your time today and all of your wisdom. Everyone if you want to check out their book called Where I Belong Healing Trauma and Embracing Asian American Identity. This is coming out in January 9th and I'm personally going to be ordering copies, not just for myself but also for my own friends. Thank you so so much guys.
2: Thank you.
1: Okay. 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 Okay.